Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Marcy. Uh, this week I am joined by uh, Steve Hayes. Steve is the editor and CEO of The Dispatch. Um, Steve, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. We we recorded an episode of this um, prior to everyone dispersing for coronavirus, and it, it quickly became out of out of um, date. And since uh, Steve, you are immersed in the political world, things change very quickly. They do. I don't know if you've noticed this. So we're recording this just so everyone knows. Um, we're recording this right after. Um, I mean, we're obviously in the midst of, I mean, I hope when people listen to this, um, some of the the disturbances uh, that are taking place across the country are, um, you know, calm down. But um, we're right sort of in the thick of it. Um, this is Tuesday and, and uh, Donald Trump. Uh, last last night uh, did his um, I don't know I would call it a stunt uh, you know in front of that Episcopalian church uh, in Washington with uh, holding what appeared to be a Bible um, aloft awkwardly um, Steve I want to get your take on the sort of political mood right now because I think from you know from someone who's political politically curious um, and is, is spends too much time on Twitter. I sort of try not to think that that these are water watershed moments because there have been so many of them. So, is this a watershed moment? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, it it, it certainly feels different. I I think it is fair to call what happened last night a stunt. I mean, you know, the 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 uh, security forces cleared an area near Lafayette Park of what had been peaceful protesters at least uh, at the time in advance of the 7 p.m. curfew and so that the president could go and hold this Bible up uh, in front of St. John's Church. It was a photo op. And, you know, I've been in journalism, either in journalism academia or or doing this for a living for more than two decades. And I've never seen a more bizarre photo op in my time covering this. Um, So let's get let's 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 get to your your sort of priors. Sure. Silver always calls this because you're. You're a journalist, you're conservative, yep. small C. Yep, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, let's talk about like how, uh, you know, the, the dispatch itself, Let's because I think I obviously want to return to this, but just I think it, it gets, sets the context for, for where you're coming from and I think why you have a um, really valuable viewpoint into this. Um, Explain your, you know, why the dispatch was founded at this time amidst Trumpism. Yeah, we we so I founded it with Jonah Goldberg, um, who is a former writer with National Review, Fox News contributor, um, Toby Stock, who was a senior fundraiser at the American Enterprise Institute, Rachel Laramore, who had been a managing editor at Slate. David French, also formerly of Nash Review. And, and we started this, uh, we, we launched, soft launched in October of 2019, um, really launched in January of this year, and then finally put up our paywall at the end of February of this year. And we've been planning this for more than a year. And our idea was to go back to sort of old school, um, fact-driven reporting and analysis Coming from the center right, I mean, we don't pretend to be something other than what we're not. We're all some form of center right, conservative, libertarian, moderate, you name it. But we all have in common that we think that what should dominate the discussions in the national debates today are facts and that we should agree on what those facts are. There aren't conservative facts. There aren't liberal facts. There aren't alternative facts. 
there are facts. We should try as best we can to come, you know, in a cross ideological way to come to some basic agreement, more or less, on what those facts are. And then let's have a big, bloody debate about what they mean and what policies should flow from those facts. So what, what we launched to do was to help try to create that environment, you know, playing our own, being mo ever modest and humble about what we can actually do in this sort of information uh, overload, do what we can to help create that environment to, to have those debates based on facts, logic, and reason. Mm -hmm. It's it's an interesting time in that this is a sort of counterintuitive strategy, right? I mean, so like, you know, I think, you know, just you're probably on on the 40 yard line of the other side of the field. I'm probably on the 40 or 35 on the other side. But like everyone else is is playing in the red zone. I feel like these yeah. days, if this analogy at, at all makes sense, um, why why is this a time? Because it doesn't it doesn't seem like um, this is a time to be playing between the 40s, if if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's counterintuitive, right? Because everything's polarized. I mean, and and you know, your original question where are we at this moment? We're five months out from the election. And the polarization that we all knew was going to come in the last couple months, last several weeks before the election, it's here. And it is here, obviously, uh, in a tremendous way. You know, on the one hand, it, it, because we're playing against that polarization and we're, we've got a different model, um, you know, we're, we're not doing things that other people are. So we're not trying to monetize eyeballs. We're not trying to generate as many clicks as we can. We're not uh, dependent on traffic to make our money. We're not dependent on ads. And we think that gives us an advantage to step back and to work a little slower to, you know, maybe even wait a day or two until we have a fuller sense of what the facts around a particular situation are and then weigh in with reporting and commentary rather than rather than you know which i think has been the case on both the left and the right but you know in our in our world in particular on the right you know something happens and within an hour you've got to be the first person out with the most outrageous takes so that you can get as many clicks as you can so you can attach ads to those clicks and you can monetize and scramble to keep up with you know google and facebook I mean, that's basically been the play. So we're well, doing I mean, sort of the opposite. Do you think that that is, I, I, I do wonder how much the, the I, you know, business models are important. It's what we, we focus on um, at Digiday. And I think, you know, business models do lead um, to, th to, to how, how people approach um, their coverage, um, clearly. Um, I wonder how much the business models and the shortcomings of the business models in, in media have fed the sort of um, the polarization of media or whether this is simply a reflection of the current political climate. Like, I mean, this, these, these have been this has been happening for a long time, right? Right. Yeah, no question. I mean, look, there are there are chickens and there are eggs and, and they both exist. Right. I, I think it's I think it's both. And there's no question that part of what's incentivizing people to do the, you know, so-and-so owned so-and-so two-paragraph story with a link to a video about somebody making an outrageous attack is that that gets them eyeballs and they can monetize that. But independent of that, yeah, I mean, there's no question that, that everything we're seeing in our politics these days 
has an emphasis on performance. It's performative politics. Look at Congress. Congress is barely a legislative body anymore. They've ceded most of their power willingly to the executive branch. And what you have seemingly increasing numbers of members of Congress doing is trying to get contracts with one of the cable networks by saying, you know, things that will rile up the base and get them on television so that they can write a book or get a contract or, you know, give give paid speeches. So we're seeing a lot more of that out of, out of uh, Congress and out of our political world in a way that exacerbates those existing um, polarizing tensions as well. But I do think the, the economic incentives and the business models that virtually everybody has pursued in this space in you know in the past 10, 15 years have contributed pretty significantly to that. So I want to get back to the business models, but just for the audience, like the audience that you're focused on is what exactly? Who is this person? This is not um, you know, this is not someone under the spell of Donald Trump, but at the same time, this is not uh, the, the, the dwindling supply of never Trumpers within the Republican Party. No, we think that actually um, a, a fair look at the way that, that our political environment is right now. I mean, you can look at it a couple of ways. You can say, look, everybody's picking a team and everybody between now and November is either going to be wearing red or blue. And it's this very thin slice in the middle. And that's, you know, th- those are the people that that we are talking to um, because we are sort of anti-partisan. We are, we are not water carriers for Republicans or Democrats. There's another way to look at it, I think. And that is you have, you know, this 10 to 15% of super partisans on either side who live and die by partisan warfare and turn everything, every single event, every single day into something partisan. So every, I mean, you can, you can look at it now in the middle of what we're, we're seeing in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing and these protests and riots, you can go to some Twitter feeds and every single tweet will blame what's happening on the Democrats. You can go to other ones. Every single tweet will blame what's happening on Antifa and the left. Reality is a lot more complicated than that. And our view is that 70% of America understands that reality is a lot more complicated than that and, and is willing to actually take a moment and Think about these nuances and actually explore these things in, in greater depth. And if you ask, if you frame the question in such a way that you say, you know, are you frustrated with what you're seeing from national leaders and from our government generally? You're talking about 70, 75% of people who say yes. And we think that we're speaking to those people, including people on the center left who might not agree with most of what we would come up with as policy prescriptions, but are willing to listen to, you know, what they would regard as sane conservatives. Mm -hmm. Explain to me why that's something different than like when say like Bill Clinton was president. I mean, because like, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but like, I think back, um, I had a short unhappy time living in, in Washington, DC, um, uh, and it, it I'm sorry. happened. It's much. It's very. It's very lovely now. Uh, it, I just didn't. It, it didn't work for me. But like, I didn't like the politics stuff. It was just too much. The uh, wrong place for that too. Yeah. Right. The you know at that time you know it was Clinton. It was during Clinton's impeachment, and um, I could understand that during that time. But this seems this seems a little bit different. So explain why that exists now. Because I bet if you did the same thing back then, it would be like, yeah, look, you know, 70% are between and like, there's like 15% who, you know, Bill Clinton, um, you know, killed Vince Foster or whatever. Um, 
and 15%, you know, you know, believe that whatever Robert Livingston or whatever, Newt Gingrich is the devil. This seems different. Yeah. Having lived so, through both, it just seems very different. So, so I, I think it might be different in degree, but I don't think it's terribly different in kind. And I think if you want to point to, to one thing that has accelerated the trends that we saw that, you, that you're pointing out in the 1990s, um, I, I would point to the availability of as much information as we have available to us now. So, yeah. you know, we've seen this explosion of, of information sources. Information. I think that's an important. It's information. It's not. It's not knowledge. It's not. It's not knowledge. No, exactly. That's a distinction. I mean, that's insight. a distinction we made in our in our. We have a little manifesto that we published called the Dispatch. What What are we doing? And that's exactly the point. There's you can. There's so much more information available at your fingertips at any given moment in the day now than there was 20 years ago. I mean, think that was a decade before we had Twitter, before Twitter was invented, before Facebook. I mean, before all of these things. Now we have so much more information available to us, but but a lot less, I would say, knowledge and wisdom. And what's exacerbated those polariz polarization trends or indices that we saw back then is that it's everywhere now. So no matter what you think, you know, if, if you believe the kind of crap that you see on Infowars, the Alex Jones nonsense, you know, you could maybe get it on some radio stations. You might, you know, be able to listen to it in, in your car and it was your own world with Alex Jones and the people who, you're, who you were feeding you that bullshit. But you didn't know that there were other people who felt the same way. Well, now you can go online and you can get in, you know, any of a number of chats and find hundreds, thousands of people who believe the same stuff and fewer and fewer sources of authority telling you that that stuff is crazy. Mm -hmm. So t explain to me as a non-conservative, the role of conservatism and why it exists today. Like, you know, I mean, it, it sprung up and I understand like, like, you know, the roots of it. Um, and, but like, why is conservatism even relevant today in this particular situation? What does it bring? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a good question. Look, I mean, de depending on, depending on how you define the term, you can make an argument that conservatism as it's long been understood, isn't that relevant. Today, I mean, look, we're we're heading into the last five months of an election in 2020 that I would argue will feature, for the first time in a long time, neither major political party's candidate making a sustained case on on behalf of limited government. Like, who believes in limited government this at this point? I mean, I don't think Joe Biden does. Yeah, certainly don't think Donald Trump does. I and mean, look at the stuff that's happening around us all the time. Um, he's not concerned about our, our national debt. And even before the, the pandemic and the explosion of spending that we saw over the past four or five months, we were increasing the national debt at never before seen pace. Like this is not a party. The Republican Party today is not a party that cares about limited government. I think the role of conservatives. But can, can I jump in there? Like just before sure. I continue. Explain to me why this is a Trump thing, though, because like, you know, the, the debt seems to explode every time there's a Republican um, president. It's just they like to spend on different things like everyone likes to spend who's a politician. I mean, that's pretty clear. Um, so, yeah, I, I th this seems to me something that that is is not like a it's it's a feature, not a bug. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. And and as a uh, a limited government conservative, I would uh, I would embrace at least part of that argument. I would say if you look back over the past ten years, though, the one true moment of political courage uh, that I think we can point to um, over the past decade came when Republicans proposed substantive, I think thoughtful reforms of our entitlement programs. I mean, entitlement programs are what's driving our national debt. Paul Ryan took what had long been regarded as the third rail of American politics. He built a set of policy proposals around reforming Medicare, Medicaid, and other entitlement programs. He took the, he slowly and I would say painstakingly took them to Republicans in Congress and took a party that in 2010 had said, don't even talk about Paul Ryan and his crazy reforms to a party that two years later had included all of those reforms in the actual budget proposal that came from House Republicans. He turned the, the, the debate on entitlements and debt and deficits on its head against tremendous blowback from his own party and from other parties in the space of two years. I think that was a big deal. Republicans then included that in their budget for the next seven years. And I think it actually meant something. Now, you can okay. disagree with but how he did I, it. Yeah, you can disagree with the He's programs. also in Wisconsin now, which brings us to our uh, Well, and this our, is the point, right? Our question I mean, this is, is, what's the point? Like, why? Yeah. What is conservatism today when we have a Republican Party in the throes of I mean, people are using the word fascist. I think, you know, you throw it around. But if you listen to some of the rhetoric, it certainly is, seems to be a little bit fascistic. Um, you, you, like, where, where is the, I don't know, where's the lane for conservatism? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that a lot of the people who have, um, and I, I'm speaking here of both elected officials and of voters um, who have, gone along or been swept up in this nationalist populist um, set of, of policies that Donald Trump has advocated, have abandoned entirely this idea of some limits on government, right? I mean, somebody at some point, we're going to have to pay off these, these debts. This can't go forever. It's the most easily predictable uh, catastrophe that we've seen, and yet people aren't taking it seriously. I think there are elected officials and, you know, I, I believe sane Republicans, Democrats across the country say, you know what, we can't just do this. We can't just let government expand forever uh, without any limits. And it's important to at least have that part of the debate represented. We think we can do that. I mean, we think we can do that in the context of reporting, in the context of facts, and also make a case for limited government because it's what we believe. So just to bring it back to the business model, exp it, then explain how that, because it, it would seem like that is a, a shrinking slice of the pie. Like I don't like, but maybe I'm just like not in, in the right areas that like, you know, at this time, I don't see like the national debt and stuff like this is animating people. I mean, the pe people are not out on the streets about the national debt. The, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see the national debt clock, uh, you know, on, on the nightly news, like repeatedly, like in the 80s. Um, it, it explain how, you know, the dispatch, you know, is, is, is building its business model around, you know, the people who are still, you know, uh, believers in these issues. 
So I think we're only in part believing or building our, our business model around the core of people who are passionate about these issues. No doubt that there are many of those types uh, among our readers. But I also think that, that it's a much bigger audience because you have people coming to us for different reasons. As I said, I mean, we have a, a good chunk of our readership is not politically aligned. They would they disagree with me on a lot of things, but they come to us because we're slowing things down, because we're not offering hot takes, because they know that they can get an intellectually honest argument about what's happening, that we will include facts before we go and make our hot take arguments, that we try as much as we can, if we're going to disagree with the position of somebody on the left or somebody on the right, to frame those arguments in the most charitable terms, in the most favorable terms to the people that we're making an argument against so that we can say, here's the best arguments argument against what we believe. And here are the reasons that we don't agree with it and lay out the facts. And I think that has a lot of appeal. It, there's, there's some relief, I think, in, in, in this crazy information overload where you know, you can go to, you could spend the entire day clicking from site to site to site to site and end up not really knowing substantially more. There's a, I think, a real market for the kinds of journalism that says we're not going to chase the news cycle. We're not going to publish 150 articles a day. We're going to publish once. We're going to publish a few articles in the morning. You can read our newsletters and you can feel like you've got a pretty good sense of what's going on in the world and then mm -hmm. live your life. Like go on and live your life. You don't have to keep coming back to our website. We don't care. We don't need your clicks. Come learn and then go live your life and then so, come back tomorrow. Come back in two days. So the model is, is, is very much around subscriptions or membership, excuse me. It is, yeah. That sort of the core component is memberships that's sort of what we led with um you know when we when we launched but it has a couple of other components as well i mean we do have some ads and sponsorships in our podcast world that we're we're building out and then <laughs> events was another one we'll we'll, we'll see how that revenue stream looks at the end of the year but um but those are the three those are the three main ones okay so how many subscriptions do you have how many members? So we have, uh, as of now, 12,000 paid members. We put up the uh, paywall in February, late February. Um, we started, we soft launched in October and offered lifetime memberships at uh, 1500 bucks a pop. And we just were sort of blown away with how many, we thought we'd get maybe a couple dozen of those and we're at about 450 of those right now. Then we turned on annual memberships and then we added monthly memberships. So uh, our, our original, original projections for end of 2020 paid members was about 2,000. We revised that up mm -hmm. to 4,200 in the fall and we're currently at 12,000. Okay. And these 12,000 are not these, these $1 offers I keep getting on Instagram for. There are no, we don't do those $1 offers. There are no discounts. We charge people 10 bucks a month, yeah. hundred bucks a year. There, there are no discounts. Can you, can you explain that? Cause a lot of people are, um, 
I don't know, there's probably some sort of um, political comparison here to, you know, inflation. But like they, a lot of people are priming the pump with they're just like churning out, um, you know, it's like I guess it's like ginning up the the um, the printing presses because, you know, you can you can goose your subscription numbers, you know, and there is a case for for just, you know, you got to get the credit card and then, you know, you're going to have a bunch of drop off, but you've got the credit card. Um, yes. Yeah, so explain. Explain why it makes more sense for this I, this approach. Well, look. I mean, I, I'm I'm sure that there are pricing experts who would decry what what we're doing or call us hopelessly naive, but we sort of have a philosophy both around the editorial side and the business side, and it's just level with people. Tell people what you're doing and don't be cute about it. So. We, we basically said, no, we're not going to do $9.99 a month. We're going to tell you it's 10 bucks because it's 10 bucks, And we're going to do 100 bucks a year. And we're not going to try to bring you in with all sorts of discounts and all sorts of gimmicks so that you feel like you have to do a half hour internet search before you join us as a member to make sure that you're getting the very best deal. It's really straightforward. That doesn't mean we'll never consider some kind of you know package deals or or discounted memberships in the future. But the way that we've chosen to approach it right now is to just tell people, this is what it costs. This is what we think this is worth. We think it's very valuable. We hope you'll join us on that basis. So how big is the company now and how big can it get? Uh, because there's, um, I mean, you know, people always call it things like lifestyle businesses or, or you know, yeah. what, what are you trying to build? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, this will sound again. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll get wrapped for sounding hopelessly naive about this. But when when we got together and first had discussions about what we wanted to build, we wanted to do something that put editorial integrity at the center of the project, so that we didn't have to do the kinds of things and makes the kinds of compromises on the business side that that would cause us to take shortcuts on the editorial side. Um, that's why we built it the way that we did. That's why we gambled that we do well with, with memberships. And we decided early that we weren't, I mean, not early enough probably, but we decided early that we weren't going to take any venture capital money because we were not building the kind of business that was conducive to hockey stick growth. And we didn't want, you know, venture capital investors coming at us and, and telling us to do the kinds of things that might get us there a little bit faster. So we, we set out uh, to build something that would be slow and deliberate based mm -hmm. primarily on reader revenue supplemented by events and, and sponsorships and grow from there. If the thing exists in 50 years and we've managed to, to keep its editorial integrity sort of um, protected and it you know, makes money and, and we can pay our people well and provide good health care and we, we're doing providing good journalism, I will consider that a success. I think we all would consider that a success. We'd okay. love it to grow. And it's growing faster than, than we had anticipated, without question. Okay, so you don't have like one of these very wealthy benefactors. I mean, because like there is a long history of political publications that have, um, you know, look, Rich people love to dabble in in political media, right? And because they love power and they love influence. Um, this isn't one of those things where you've got like you know the Mercers or some someone someone who has a, a different sort of agenda. No, we have we're majority um, founder and employee owned. Uh, we have no single investor owns more than five and a half percent 
of the company. So it's another way in which we're sure that we can do what we want to do because we, we own the thing and we run the thing. Okay. Because, I mean, the, the Weekly Standard sort of ran into that, they believe, with their owner, um, which, look, there's, there's upsides and downsides to billionaires. Yeah, I mean, that, look, that was... They wake up one day and they, they decide that their interests are somewhere else. Uh, yeah, and that's, I mean, that's been reported publicly. That's what happened at, at the Weekly Standard. Uh, the, the owner decided that he was going to put resources toward another one of his properties, the Washington Examiner, and shifted our uh, subscribers from the Weekly Standard over to the Washington Examiner and, and sort of doubled up on what he was doing there. He was the owner. It was his, his decision. Yeah, well... It's good to have independence in that you can pursue, you know, what you want to. Um, so uh, the final thing is, I just want to get back to, you know, the 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 unrest and um, and and the underlying issues. And I wonder, like, how, you know, what where you see the dispatch's role in in examining these kinds of issues. Like you say, like it's for it's not, you know, it's not for the the fifteen percent on on sort of quote unquote either side, but but these are these are very big and and systemic issues, at least from my point of view, that have been overlooked by by most media, um, particularly by political media, um, that need to be addressed. So how yeah. do you I mean it's very early into this, I feel like, but but how are you seeing um, the role of the dispatch? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're, I think, sufficiently humble about what we can do to change these, you know, huge nation altering events. And I think from the outset, we've said, let's try to do what we can do and do that as well as we can and, and understand that, you know, we're probably not going to change the world with our 12 person staff. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we've doubled down on things like fact checking and on reporting. And, you know, when we look at the, the ways that we're going to build the company, the kinds of people that we're going to add, that's where we're adding. Um, we're, we're not going out and looking for somebody who can do a 600 word hot take in 30 minutes to get us more clicks. We're looking for somebody who can go out and find stuff out, who can take conspiracy theories that we're hearing on the right or on the left, run them down, confirm them if they're true, uh, dispel them if they're not, and give people a sense of of what they can actually believe and what they can know. And I use the word know in a deliberate way. Yeah. So if we can play that role, I mean, I think we're, you know, we're, we're, we're helping the cause. We're not, we're not going to change the world tomorrow, but we can certainly do our part. Okay, Steve, we're going to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us again. You bet. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> and thank you all um, for listening. We will be back next week with a new episode.